Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. It talks about a strong, oblong pin that was covered on top with a floor of logs and protected on the side opposite to the fort with a breastwork of light timber. Luckily for them, the British did not have any cannons. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jeff Dacus talking about the Continental Army's Tower of Victory. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publisher of The Battles of Connecticut Farms and Springfield, 1780, by Edward G. Lengel. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jeff Dacus, talking about one of the great and unheralded feats of engineering in the entirety of the American Revolution. Jeff Dacus' story today uh, is one about quick thinking and outside-the-box thinking uh, on the South Carolina frontier. He's talking about the construction of a tower, a siege tower, to capture a British fort. One of the great things about this podcast that I love, and really all of the articles on the Journal of the American Revolution is that you get to hear all these little stories that by themselves are extremely compelling, um, that add up to a total picture of an, uh, an American revolution most of us never even realized. Jeff Dacus' article on the Tower of Victory is one of those great stories. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our conversation with Jeff Dacus. Jeff Dacus, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be back. Tell us about your background. Okay. Well, uh, I'm a retired school teacher, retired U.S. Marine. I taught uh, U.S. history for 35 years, and I was a Marine Corps tanker, uh, fought in the Gulf War. Um, that's about it. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, I was doing another article. I did an article about... Uh, both Lee and Francis Marion, when they uh, came up with the uh, very creative idea of using um, bow and arrow to start a uh, British fortification on fire. And while I was doing that particular article, I happened to run into information about this other incident where they went back in time and decided to use a siege tower to. Uh, defeat another British fort during part of their campaign after uh, Guilford Courthouse. Talk about the strategic situation following the battle at Guilford Courthouse. Well, that's that's a very interesting time because, uh, oddly enough, the battle of Guilford Courthouse was one of those victories where uh, you have a victory, but you got defeated on the battlefield. Um, Nathaniel Green is defeated by uh, Lord Cornwallis 
at the battle and is forced to retreat. But in doing so, Cornwallis loses so many men and has lost so much uh, equipment and time that he is also forced to retreat afterwards. And he retreats all the way to Wilmington. And in doing so, he leaves a string of fortifications open to harassment or even destruction and capture by the American forces. So uh, one of these forts is the uh, fort um, of this article, Fort Watson, and uh, Fort Mott, which was the fort I mentioned before that they captured by uh, starting at a fire by using old-fashioned bow and arrows and uh, firing the arrows into the enemy fortification and starting a fire. Who was first tasked with attacking Fort Watson? The question is a good one because this is one of those times where there's kind of a combined command structure between two officers, and they turn out to be a great uh, combination. You have uh, Light Horse Harry Lee, uh, a regular Continental officer, cavalry officer, who has had a distinguished career in the northern uh, campaigns and has just been sent south. And he is joined with Green's forces. And after the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, uh, Nathaniel Green tasks Lee with harassing uh, the British outposts, uh, like I said, Fort Granby, Orangeburg, Fort Mott, Fort Watson, a string of outposts. And Lee joins forces with the local militia leader, uh, Francis Marion, the famous Swamp Fox. And for once during the Revolutionary War, it is a marriage made in heaven. These two guys uh, become a very good combined uh, leader type situation. And they get along well, and they work well together in taking uh, first Fort Mott, and they're going to take Fort Watson, and they'll continue after that. The two of them, uh, both creative, both willing to listen to each other. Unlike many of the uh, famous members of the uh, Southern militia, like Sumter and, and others, who are very... Uh, guarded in their rank, and they, they're they very uh, loath to cooperate with Continental forces. These two guys uh, work out very well and uh, are able to capture several British outposts working together. Could you give us some idea what Fort Watson looked like, what made it such a uh, superior position? Well, Fort Watson uh, is situated on a an old Indian mound. And that's, they say it's an Indian mound, and it was about 40 feet high. And around it, they made uh, three rows of, and I'm not French, so I don't know how to pronounce the word, a batis, a batai, whatever the term is for the spikes uh, that are attached uh, to a a log or something, and they point out and uh, make a natural, like, we would use barbed wire today. They used it as a defensive uh, uh, weapon to keep uh, troops channeled, easier to kill them. And around this mound is a large flat area, which makes it very difficult to attack because you're going to have to attack this uh, one 
uh, high point, uh, and anyone that knows tactics knows that high ground is always a great advantage, and the British have high ground, and they can see anybody. You can't surprise them. Uh, it's going to be very difficult to approach without being seen, and they can always fire down on you. It's always easier to fire down on somebody than to try and fire up and and hit them. So it's a very uh, difficult uh, defensive position, and uh, the Americans decide they want to attack it. There's there's over a hundred British inside it, so it's well defended. There's an important figure in your article that doesn't get a lot of attention. Hezekiah Mayhem. Can you talk about him? Oh, Hezekiah Mayhem. That's a, a great guy. He was a uh, member of a well-to-do family. Uh, he was uh, born in South Carolina, uh, 1739. Uh, he was a very well-known local man. He had money. He was a planter. He was uh, very popular locally, served in many uh, local uh, political positions. He was in the Provincial Congress when uh, the war broke out in 1775. Uh, he was also known to be cantankerous and opinionated and more than willing to let you know what he thought of a situation. And that brought him to the uh, uh, conclusion that he wanted to talk to Marion and uh, Lee and broached the idea that because this mound is so high and it's hard to uh, reach that go back to uh, medieval times and build a tower that was just as high as the mound so that you could fire into the uh, enemy position. What was his great idea? Well, as much as I can, I can get from this, he came up with the idea and then he went through uh, other officers and kind of let it be known. And then he was brought to, uh, Marion and Lee and that's when he broached his idea uh, like I said he was very well known for being uh, opinionated that type of thing and so uh, like many soldiers throughout history they sometimes know better than their uh, commanding officer and whether it's true or not in this case uh, he thought he knew better than them and he told them of his idea and uh, kind of in a roundabout way, others kind of presented him to uh, Marion and Lee, and that's how he presented his idea. How did this Tower of Victory operate, and can you give us some maybe military background on how towers like this are typically used? Well, we can go way back, and uh, I don't know how much time you have for, for siege towers, but, uh, you know, way back, uh, to Alexander the Great uh, in ancient times. Anytime there was a large fortification, uh, siege towers were the way that they were uh, able to overcome a fortified town, usually. Um, I mention Alexander the Great because, of course, his, his great siege of Tyre, uh, he built a huge tower that uh, overlooked the city and enabled him to uh, shoot down in into the city and then he put towers on vessels and the vessels were brought up because Tyre was basically an island and he built a causeway out to the island and then rolled the tower out to it and then looked down into the fortifications and the people in the town 
attacked and destroyed that tower, but then he brought up ships, and those ships had towers on them that he was able to shoot down arrows and uh, rocks and stones inside the city. So it, it goes back, that's uh, three, 336, 330-something 330 uh, B.C., and all the way through, up through uh, medieval times, uh, it was a normal way until artillery came along, and it made it uh, very difficult for you to construct a tower with the other side having artillery that might be able to destroy your tower. In this case, Mayhem's tower was uh, basically, uh, it's a 50-foot tower, and it, as described in uh, uh, Lee's memoirs, it talks about a strong oblong pin that was covered on top with a floor of logs and protected on the side opposite to the fort with a breastwork of light timber. Luckily for them, the British did not have any cannons, so they were able to put their best riflemen on top of this tower and shoot down into the British fortifications. How does Fort Watson ultimately fall, and what does that mean for the British? Well, the British war effort at this time because they were uh, able to win but lost, in a way, uh, Guilford Courthouse. This is one of the important positions along the, the uh, supply line from Camden to Charleston. And already Fort Mott, as described before, was another one of these positions. Fort Mott had already been taken, and now with the second uh, fortification taken on that, the British are forced to uh, basically withdraw from the area because of the success of Lee and Marion. And the uh, British cannot supply in the interior and are forced to move to the coast. Of course, they will never uh, give up Charleston, but they're forced to break away and Cornwallis will change his whole campaign after he's sent back to Wilmington, he moves up into Virginia and leaves basically Charleston and what little forces are left in the south and takes the main British force in the southern colonies up to Yorktown. And of course, we know that once he goes up to Yorktown, he gets stuck there. And uh, that's the end of the British along that uh, southern, they're basically stuck in their coastal fortifications because they're getting, the uh, remaining forces are going to be defeated at Hobkirk's Hill and places like that. By Nathaniel Green, he's basically going to be able to uh, force the British out of any type of interior uh, you know, positions in the in uh, North and South Carolina. Uh, the British don't have enough people. Most people are with Cornwallis, so they're unable to reconquer the southern colonies. What does this event reveal to us about the Revolutionary Era? Well, as I said, I think I think this is a, a, a example of small things coming together and ending up in a large uh, kind of decisive thing. The battles to take Fort Mott and Orangeburg and all these little uh, battles 
uh, they they don't really mean much in themselves. A few hundred British are taken here, a few hundred there. Uh, in fact, along the way, the uh, British will actually win some battles or battles will be draws, but there's so few British remaining after Cornwallis leaves that these battles essentially clear the British out of the South. And one of the things that happened after the Battle of Monmouth in 1778 was the British had turned their attention from the north and turned it to the south because they thought that the southern population was more likely to be loyalist. But as these little forts fall in the south and there's no big army, Cornwallis leaves, then the loyalists, the people who would be loyal to the king and the imperial cause, they have no one to hang on to, and the American cause is able to slowly filter back in and take over the southern colonies, and there's never a chance for an uprising of loyalists because of these little battles that gradually take each one of the British forts in the interior of North and South Carolina. In uh, Augusta and uh, 96 fall in May and June, their interior positions for the British uh, of the same year. And gradually, there's no one whom the loyalists in the South can cling to. So if the British were unable to conquer the North and had moved to the South in 1778 to, to change their strategy, they were unable to successfully do it once. Uh, Cornwallis changed his plans and moved into Virginia. These little battles are going to take the South away from the British, and there's no way they can they can attain victory in the South. Jeff Dacus, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brady. This is very good. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.